Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay. How are you all doing? I hope you're doing well. Um, oh, I don't know why my voice just cracked there. I'm like, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> I'm not doing well. Uh, no, I'm actually doing really well. I posted for like the first time in a while on YouTube, which was, which is always so scary. I've been doing this job for like three years and for some reason like every time I'm about to post a video, I like get the shivers and I'm like, oh my god, like no one's going to click on this video. Um, and it's always just my anxiety talking because ultimately there's always at least one person who clicks and that is my mom. Hi mom. <laughs> I got some really good comments on my video though and I feel like taking that extra amount of time for myself and to really think about like what I'm interested in talking about that has really served me I think I've said this before but just like as of recent I noticed myself kind of gravitating towards topics that I know people want to hear about and a lot of the times those topics are not particularly topics that I'm like super, super passionate about. They're topics that I have an opinion on or they're topics that I think are interesting. But I think there's like a difference, right? There's like a scale, a spectrum, if you will, of topics that I think are interesting versus topics that I'm like truly obsessed with. And for this past video, I was truly obsessed with what I was talking about, with what I was like researching. And I think because of that, like I just like, had a lot more fun with it. And regardless of the performance of the video itself, I'm really happy with it. And I know it's like a video that I enjoyed making. And it's a video that I will look back on. Probably, it's probably my video, my most favorite video that I've made to date, which is a big deal because I've made like 102 videos now. So thank you all for your support and for sticking by me and just for being here. I really, really appreciate everyone. There's also a couple comments that I wanted to share that were really insightful. So um, just for context, if you haven't seen the video, and you don't have to if it's not something that you're interested in, but, you know, just to, like, understand what we're talking about. Um, my video is called Clothes Are So Much Worse Now, and I was basically, like, dissecting sweaters, um, or I guess I was, like, using sweaters as a conversation point for why clothing quality has decreased over time. And... In it, I also talked about um, the steps I take in determining whether something is high quality or a sweater, I should say, whether a sweater is high quality. And by nature of, I guess, the topic, everyone has been kind of noticing the same thing about their clothes just not lasting long. Um, I got so many wonderful comments from people sharing their own tips. And this one comment I actually pinned, but in case you missed it, I'm going to read it out. Um, this person is a European slash Scandinavian knitter and has a couple tips on how to prolong the life of your sweaters slash knits. One, invest in a depiller slash fabric shaver. I say invest, but they are generally quite cheap. It is a little battery-operated machine that shaves off the pilling on your sweaters and knits, even wool coats, so they look like they're new again. Number two, as a rule of thumb in the knitting community, the softer the yarn, the more likely it is to pill. Fabric density, as you mentioned, and ply, as well as other factors, also play a role. Uh, to add on to that, a lot of the times softness comes from overwashing or treating the fabric with chemicals. And because of that, like, it will break the fibers, which will cause pilling, or it'll just make your sweater less durable. So I would be aware of <laughs> sweaters that are just like so, so, so soft because a lot of the times it's too good to be true. Three, store your knits flat, not hanging to preserve their shape. Four, after washing your knits based on the care instruction, lay them flat on a towel, roll up the towel with the sweater and step a couple times on your towel sweater burrito, then unroll and dry sweater flat. Towel sweater burrito is optional but speeds up the drying, laying flat preserves the shape. That is really cool. I personally don't really wash my sweaters too often. Um, probably like, oh, I, I, I mean, not to be gross, but there are some sweaters that like I have never washed um, because if they, if they don't get stains on them, then I'm like, there's no point in washing. Also, yeah, I don't like sweat a lot in the wintertime. So a lot of my sweaters just don't get dirty. But this also leads to... The fifth thing that this person wrote, pure wool limits the buildup of odor and doesn't need to be washed after everywhere. Yeah, 
Like by nature of how wool is, you don't need to clean her that often. She knows what she's doing. She can figure it out herself. It's big laundry who tells you you need to wash your clothes all the time. Um, okay, this is like a pivot. I'm like leaving this person's comment thread for a second because I actually read this really cool article on washing your jeans. And the reality is you don't need to be washing those jeans that often, if ever. If you get a stain on the jeans, you should spot clean it um, rather than throwing the whole thing in the washer because washing jeans will impact their shape and color and also keeping them unwashed makes them look cooler. I'm sorry, like distressed jeans that are actually distressed and not like pre-distressed, those are just cooler looking. Pre-distressed jeans do suck because um, the way that they pre-distress them a lot of the times hurts the the workers, the production workers. In this in this book, I think it was Clothing Poverty that I read and I cited it in my sources also, but I'll cite it again in the show notes for this episode. A bunch of people in Turkey died from sand blasting these jeans to make them look more distressed because they got it in their lungs and it killed them. So pre-distressing sucks. Just wear your jeans out like a normal person and get them a little bit rugged. It's very easy to do. Also on a sustainability front, like washing clothes too often, like doing laundry too often is not super sustainable because washing machines use up a lot of water. And also water um, in a lot of cities, you have to pay for your own water. In New York, because I live in an apartment unit that is owned by someone else, they pay for the water. But someone's paying for water. And if you happen to be the person paying for water, you don't need to be paying for that much water um, if you just don't wash your clothes that often. Or what I have done actually, and this is coming from someone who only got a washing machine in an apartment like two years ago. Before then, I was doing all my laundry in the tub um, or at the laundromat, but I was often too lazy to go to the laundromat. So I would wash my clothing in the sink or in the tub. And it's just like way less harsh on your clothing to hand wash. I know it's so annoying, but like your clothes will actually last a lot longer if you're washing with your hands because your hands are just more delicate. They're just, they caress the clothing. They massage the clothing. And I mostly learned to hand wash too because a lot of my vintage clothing cannot be washed in a washing machine because they are more delicate. And it got to a point where I was like, okay, if I'm like washing a bunch of my clothes by hand, I might as well just like wash the underwear and socks by hand too. (laughs) Now I have a laundry machine, so I'll put like socks and underwear in the laundry machine, but I tend to not wash anything else. I'll wash activewear, which kind of sucks because activewear is mostly made with synthetic fibers that release microplastics in um, the water, but there's nothing we can do. I literally went on a deep dive Google search trying to find activewear that was made of like 100% natural fibers or at least like tensile, which is man-made but doesn't bleed microplastics. And it's so hard to find. We really need to invest in that, people. Okay, going back to this person's tips. Regarding quality, well-crafted hand-knit garments are often considered heirloom pieces, not just for the rest of the lifetime, and a hand-knit sweater, of course, depending on size, needle size, complexity, skill level, etc., is generally considered to take 30 to 40 hours to complete for a well-versed knitter. As far as I know, wool prices for many Northern European sheep breeds have crashed. This is due to consumer preferences for softer yarns in garments, a lot of merino. So that is also something to consider. Given the often thinner fabric and proneness to pilling from softer yarn, this shift towards softer yarn could have something to do with the perceived quality decrease. It was really funny to hear you say that the Aran sweater Ben is wearing is giving wearing heat tech underneath. I'm paraphrasing. Most yarn from more hardy sheep living in northern regions is generally coarser, however, also warmer. And I can imagine that the sweater Billy is wearing, given that the wool would be coarser, actually would inspire many people to wear something underneath to avoid it being too itchy. On the other hand, most modern store-bought sweaters are softer and the chance that it could be worn next to skin is higher. If I wear a sweater that is hand-knit in a coarser yarn, I generally tend to wear something long-sleeved underneath. I could say so much more, but we'll end here. But also the sheep grease made me laugh so much. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, so many good tips. Yeah, I I mentioned the thing about like 
Ben sweater looking like you would have to wear like a bunch of layers, not because it would be itchier, but because it looks like it wasn't warm. But I totally get that like Philly sweater does look like it might be itchy and you would definitely have to wear something underneath. Also, I always wear a base layer underneath my sweaters anyway, just so that like the sweater doesn't get as dirty from contact with my skin because again I don't love to wash sweaters uh, it ruins their shape a lot of the times and so if I can prevent it I will that's what people did back in the days they would wear like a base layer like a chemise or a shift underneath their corsets and stays because it was really difficult to launder corsets and stays so you just wanted to prevent them from getting dirty um, as much as possible and that's where the base layer came in the base layer was made of cotton or linen and it was not easy to wash uh, but easier to wash. I would recommend watching Bernadette Banner's video on um, laundry <laughs> because it just looks like a lot of work to do laundry back in the day but definitely easier to wash cotton and linen than to wash like whalebone, velvet, or any of the luxury materials that um, outerwear was made of. I also got a comment about someone who said that wool is really itchy for them and they have like a lot of sensory issues. Um, and I didn't really address this in the video, though I kind of wish that I did. My mom is also allergic to wool or something within wool. Um, so I definitely understand the struggle. For people who are allergic to wool, <laughs> the reason I'm like kind of hesitating to say that is because there are a lot of studies that say like people aren't actually like allergic to wool they're allergic to lanolin usually or the wool is like so low quality and that they're more sensitive to the the short fibers breaking off um, but whatever it is there's a lot of reasons why people might feel that wool is itchy and if it's lanolin um, alpaca wool does not have lanolin so I would look at alpaca wool if you know you're allergic to lanolin but if it's like just like a sensory issue there are alternatives for sure. I mean, merino wool is going to be the softest that you can find. So I would definitely try that. Um, but the person who commented on my video was like, even merino wool bothers me. Even cotton kind of bothers me. And to that I say, there's a lot of um, synthetic fibers that are biodegradable. Like they're organic. They are sometimes even better for the environment than a lot of natural fibers. And these fibers include tensile, soy fabric, uh, sea cell, bamboo. And I think ready-to-wear garments made from these fabrics are a little bit more rare. Like you have to do a lot more digging because they're not like very popular in the industry yet. Um, but if you do know how to knit, I highly recommend looking into that. But yeah, overall guys, I'm just like really happy about um, the discussions that we're all having about this. And I think... There, I usually don't read like new comments. I'll read like some of the top comments on my YouTube video because protecting my peace. Um, but I feel like a lot of like the top comments, they were just all very positive and very understanding and just like genuinely trying to help someone else out. And I, and I love that. So this week I came across um, this concept of human hair as a uh, fiber material, <laughs> which, okay, stick with me. This is a thought experiment. I don't actually know if the person who wrote all this is um, actually like that dedicated to introducing human hair as a textile, but... The, the website is humanmaterialloop.com and it was founded as a mission to create a true textile revolution and to show that people are not above but part of the ecosystem. Human Material Loop collects and processes waste human hair and develops high-performance textiles for various industries. I have never heard of any company utilizing human hair, so I don't know exactly like what they're doing. I have to look into it more, but... I thought it was worthy of sharing just because it's kind of like on that topic of sustainability. It's something that's very cool, uh, but also kind of weird. And yeah, I mean, I don't know from my limited research if people have ever used human hair as a form 
of fashion. People have definitely used human hair in jewelry, like specifically Victorian hair jewelry was a thing. And it might sound gross and it might still be gross even if you see what it is, but it's actually very beautiful. I'm not talking about the lock of hair that's in a locket of someone's um, necklace. I'm talking about like actual crochet type of designs, knit designs using hair. And I'll, <laughs> I'll link an article, of course, in the show notes so you can check that out. But these were pretty popular during the height of romanticism. And they were crafted as tokens of love, friendship, or in memoriam of a beloved family member. They took the form of brooches, necklaces, and bracelets, and were made stylish in Europe by Scandinavian crafters and, of course, the OG fashion influencer, Queen Victoria. I'm doing a Patreon episode on uh, morning attire, so Queen Victoria, we are getting very acquainted this week. (laughs) In this library museum article that I found about it, Their pieces that they have in their collection range in date from 1840 to 1880. And let me just like read this section of the article. Brought to the rest of Europe by Swedish craftswoman, this craft allowed artists to create detailed embroidered landscapes using woven strands of hair. Through time, weaving styles became more intricate and pearls, jewels, and other ornamentations were added. Queen Victoria made the new craft for hair art fashionable when she presented a bracelet made from her own hair to the Empress Eugenie, the beautiful wife of Napoleon III. It was from then on that hair jewelry was an important commodity. Spring fairs and markets attracted young ladies who traded locks of hair for ribbons, combs, and trinkets. From what it sounds like, though, like you just wouldn't wear someone else's hair. Um, it was like your hair that you used or like a loved one or a friend's hair that you would use. As far as I know, I don't think people just like picked up random hair (laughs) from the market and then asked someone to create jewelry of it. It was only around the turn of the 20th century when Victorian hair jewelry slowly became undesirable after the death of Queen Victoria. Um, Another factor was World War I and the increasing power of women's rights and popularity of the short bob hairstyle brought hair jewelry to a close. (laughs) I've gone to a couple antique stores, honestly, and I've seen um, human hair jewelry, and I've thought about, like, buying it for, like, you know, research purposes or whatever, but I didn't because the human hair jewelry that I've seen is pretty expensive, and I don't actually know if it would freak me out after like the initial novelty of having human hair jewelry wore off um but it is really cool the concept so definitely hair has been used as a fashion statement before okay also like really quick side note because this just popped into my head and therefore i have to say it did any of you read that article about the guy who made like tacos out of his leg um so this is like (laughs) something my friends and i have talked about um But basically this guy, he had to get his leg amputated for like health purposes. Like there was some health issue. Like he wasn't just like, I'm just chopping off my leg for the day. Um, He had to get his leg amputated. And then he decided that it was like an opportunity for him to actually eat his leg. And so he told the hospital that for like religious purposes, he needed to keep his leg to like bury it in some proper way because it was considered a biohazard. The hospital... Like, what if they amputate a part of your body, they, like, dispose of it themselves. They don't usually let you return home with it. But I guess because it was for a quote-unquote religious reason, they made an exception. If anyone knows where amputated body parts go in a hospital, I would love to know. Um, I just, like, want to make sure that it's, like, biodegradable people. <laughs> I'm kidding. But actually, I kind of am interested. Um, but, yeah, so this guy, like, took back his leg and then he, like, decided to cook his leg and he invited a bunch of friends over um, to taste his leg. And he told them, of course, it wasn't like some like creepy Hannibal shit. Like he let them know that he was cooking his leg and if they were interested for their once in a lifetime opportunity to taste human meat, um, he was making it. And uh, yeah, my friends and I were just like talking about that. And we're like, would you 
eat a human leg if given the opportunity. Like if it was ethical, like it was someone who had a part of their body amputated and they were like, I would love for you to come and celebrate my leg with me through eating it. And um, at risk of like losing subscribers, I was like, yes, because I, um, you know, I think it would just be interesting of an experience. It's ethical. And I think unless you eat a human brain, like nothing will happen to you. Because I know like if you eat a human brain, like you might get some kind of parasite that will incubate in your body for like up to 50 years and then you'll die. It's like mad cow disease. So yeah, definitely stay away from the brain. But I think like if it was a leg, oh, I don't know. Actually, that sounds really gross. I don't know. But then I'm like, I would never be afforded this opportunity again, ever. <sighs> um, okay, another side note and then I'm done, I swear. But this is another conversation my friends and I had. And it was like every food is either a soup, a salad, or a sandwich. Yeah, just like think about that. Marinate in that. Like a hot dog is a sandwich. Um, cake is a sandwich. Uh, pasta is a salad. Acai bowls are soup. Yeah. <laughs> just think about that for a second. <laughs> okay, back to human hair fibers. So the reason that they thought about this project was because human hair makes up so much waste. Um, and this human hair is specifically coming from salons. It's not like people are like going around chopping off people's hair, clipping. Can you imagine like someone just like running around clipping pieces of hair? I feel like that actually happened in elementary school. I think like someone was running around with a pair of scissors trying to clip off people's hair. Okay. Besides the point, ethically farmed hair because it's coming from salons and in this little flow chart that they made, 72 million kilograms of human hair waste ends up in landfills every year just in Europe. And that is the weight of seven Eiffel Towers. Human hair is a carotene protein fiber, just like wool or alpaca, and has strength comparable to steel. That is crazy. I feel like my hair doesn't have strength comparable to steel. Like it's very easy to break. Um, the bleach didn't help. The combined hair of a head could support 12 tons, which equals two elephants. What? Okay. I'll definitely have to look more into that because that just doesn't sound real. Um, <laughs> okay, moving on. Hair can withstand up to 70% deformation before breaking. And so the solution to all this uh, for a zero waste society solution is on top of our heads. So that's a flowchart. And then they actually have a lot of information here. So cutoff hair does not contain nuclear DNA. They could feed a local economy because I guess many humans all over the world have hair that could be used, which would mean no shipping emissions. Oh, and then biodegradability is up to two years, which is like the same as wool. Also, if you're just interested in knowing, cotton biodegrades in five months, cellulose degrades in four months, linen degrades in two weeks, linen with two N's, um, <laughs> and synthetic up to 200 years. Boo. <laughs> and yeah, so basically they have a bunch of flowcharts about how this is like actually better for the environment, it's zero waste, and because Hair is so readily available. It would be a cheap fiber. And yeah, it's like very similar to wool in a way. So my question is, would you wear a sweater made of human hair? Um, and you know, my immediate thought was like, okay, this was like kind of gross. Like, I don't know about that. But then I was thinking about hair extensions and how so many people wear like human hair extensions and it's like legitimately other people's hair and like no one bats an eye about it. Um, I guess because it's like on your head where hair belongs and so people aren't creeped out by it. But then I'm like we also wear wool very commonly and wool is like hair of a sheep or like at least cashmere. That's like literally goat hair and people don't bat an eye about that. And it's just, like, interesting that we have such, like, an aversion to any kind of, like, human hair, like, human product. Um, 
but then we'll like take the same product from an animal and we think that's like totally okay. Um, and also like I'm not like trying – I'm like this This episode is not voting well. I'm like pitching, um, eating legs and wearing hair. But um, okay, I just want to say I'm not pro-cannibalism. I'm, I'm very anti-cannibalism. And also um, I think like the reason we don't think of like human body parts or like anything from a human as – something that we should be producing is because like the nature of producing large scale is exploitation and that is something we definitely are uncomfortable doing with other humans obviously and so yeah like the idea of wearing someone's hair would connote like these kinds of like uh crazy ethics but like the reality that this company is proposing is that it's just human hair waste which is um, readily available. I also think that a lot of aversion to human hair comes down to hygiene because we don't know the person whose hair this came from and we don't know if they are a clean person, I guess. It's kind of like when you find hair in your food that came from someone else and you're like, uh, <laughs> where, where did this come from? Um, so this kind of relates to what I've been reading. Um, I think I mentioned this before, but I'm still reading Clean by Dr. James Hamblin, and it's it's a really good book so far. I'm not that deep in it, but he dissects disgust, like the phenomenon of disgust and why um, we feel disgusted by things and other people, and it's an evolutionary response. It stems from wanting to protect ourselves from infectious diseases, so a lot of things that we are disgusted by are things that we think or our brains think on an evolutionary level are related to diseases. And Hamblin interviews Val Curtis, who is a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She is a disgustologist and she researches um, what makes us disgusted. <laughs> And she found it's not suffering that disgusts us. Like if someone is dying of cancer or having a heart attack, um, a lot of people have no aversion to rushing to this person to help them. But seeing blood or vomit or feces or leaking wounds, all carriers of pathological microbes, triggers an instinctive aversion to protect ourselves from infectious diseases. And this is literally evolutionary because other species of animals feel this way too. Um... For example, the Caribbean spiny lobsters have been shown to avoid peers with viral infections. Ants groom themselves to remove disease-causing fungi and dispose of the corpses of their fallen brethren. And bees remove their diseased friends from the hive and leave them to die. And Hamlin says, like, from a human perspective, this seems really cruel, but these animals don't have elaborate medical healthcare systems that allow them to care for their sick, and they are more concerned with protecting their group, their families, their colonies, their um, species. So I think that even though, um, you know, according to this, like, report, and you can read it, um, like, human hair is actually, like, pretty clean, especially if it's washed or whatever, I think as of now, our disgust mechanism towards, like, other people's hair is probably too strong for this to be a viable textile in the future. But, you know, maybe things will change. <laughs> I don't know. I just think, like, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> oh, before I forget, I read something that I think corresponds a lot with what we talked about last episode. We talked about <laughs> – I'm like, wait, what did we talk about? <laughs> No, we talked about how social media is inherently unsocial these days. We are at peak unsocial on social media. And I came across this article that I um, think relates really well to the topic of last episode. And it's called Why the Internet Isn't Fun Anymore by Kyle Chaka. And it was published in The New Yorker. And there's this one section that I want to read off because, once again, it really relates to what I was saying last time. But... Kyle Cheka is just a better writer than me or better like is able to like put ideas forward in a way that I'm very jealous of and um so here I'm just gonna read it 
According to Eleanor Stern, a TikTok video essayist with nearly 100,000 followers, part of the problem is that social media is more hierarchical than it used to be. There's this divide that wasn't there before between audiences and creators, Stern said. The platforms that have the most traction with users today, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitch, function like broadcast stations, with one creator posting a video for her millions of followers. What the followers have to say to one another doesn't matter the way it did on the old Facebook or Twitter. Social media used to be more of a place for conversation and reciprocity, Stern said. Now conversation isn't strictly necessary, only watching and listening. Posting on social media might be a less casual act these days as well because we've seen the ramifications of blurring the border between physical and digital lives. Instagram ushered in the age of self-commodification online. It was the platform of the selfie. But TikTok and Twitch have turbocharged it. Selfies are no longer enough. Video-based platforms showcase your body, your speech and mannerisms, and the room you're in, perhaps even in real time. Everyone is forced to perform the role of an influencer. The barrier to entry is higher and the pressure to conform stronger. It's no surprise in this environment that fewer people take the risk of posting and more settle into roles as passive consumers. Yeah, I I totally agree with this take. I think that um, social media is so, so hierarchical. And I'm speaking this as someone who kind of like transitioned from being a passive consumer to being a more active creator in the past like three years once I started my YouTube channel. I'm like existing on all social media platforms except for Twitter. I deactivated Twitter but I'm existing on most social media platforms. I did have to draw a line with Instagram in the past couple weeks. This mostly corresponded with me going on vacation but also I, I just feel like vacation is like the best time to unplug from social media because you're like actively doing stuff and you're not like I don't know as chained to your phone in my opinion like there's more distractions like physical distractions and I was actually talking with my boyfriend in the car the other day and he was like also saying how he hasn't been on Instagram very much and he was like why am I on Instagram so much when I'm at home like am I just like super bored is like being at home super boring And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I think we become complacent with our surroundings when we're at home, right? Um, Because I live in New York City. There's tons of things to do. When I have friends visiting, the way that they talk about New York is so different from my own perspective of New York. It's incredible. Like my friends, um, I have one friend who was visiting from London and she was visiting with her mom. She and her mom, very cute, love them. But They were like, oh my God, we love New York. We've been walking so much. We walk like over 10,000 steps a day. Like you just must walk so much here. Meanwhile, I'm thinking like uh, there are days when I don't leave my house. There are days when I'm just like sitting on my floor, playing with my cats, watching TV. I'm not doing anything that would indicate that I live in New York. Like I'm not living a New York lifestyle for most of the days. I'm just like hanging out at home probably bored. So I don't necessarily think it has to do with like your particular environment, though I'm sure there are a lot of people who have less to do um, socially like outside of their home than others. But I think when you're on vacation mindset, you're like so gung-ho about everything, about like being able to relax at the beach or going hiking or going to a museum or just like exploring that – the need to like doom scroll is just severely decreased, at least in my experience. I don't know. Um, I do think that there are some people who do love to document every single part of their vacation. And maybe if that's the case, then they're online more when they're on vacation. But for me personally, like I have realized I don't actually like documenting my vacation for my entire Instagram follower base and this is another thought I have when it came to the hierarchical conversation is like over time once I started posting a lot on YouTube I just didn't have the desire to share so much of my life anymore on Instagram and when I log into Instagram it's like I'm on business mode I'm like okay I am a like an e-list public figure but this is my job and Whatever I post, I post through the lens of like 
my job. Um, and what that means is not necessarily like that the things that I'm posting are inauthentic. I think it's really hard to take like an inauthentic outfit photo, for instance, which is like what a lot of my posts are. But it's just sort of like I'm clocking in and I'm posting more out of obligation to be active on social media and less because I feel like I need to be sharing this part of my life, if that makes sense. I don't know. I've just like – I've become like a lot more private, I think. And with Instagram, I think I'm trying to like deviate away from it because I feel like every time I'm on Instagram, I get like really stressed out. I think like honestly like the bigger following that I've gotten, like the more I'm unable to deal with like any form of targeted hatred. I think like when I first started, I was fighting in those YouTube comments. Um, If you go to my earlier videos, anytime I made like some kind of controversial – video of any sort and people like if there were any naysayers I would comment I would pick them out and I would comment and of course there was like mostly positive comments and I would like not really pay attention to those because negativity bias is like the people who are targeting you are the only people that exist um which is not true but I just feel like over time I've I've grown like a lot more intolerant to it and I think part of it is becoming is because I've gone through this kind of like spiritual list. Ew, like I, I have like I feel like this sounds so annoying. I'm because I don't want to sound like one of those like hippie girls who are who are like faux spiritual. Like they just like say they're really spiritual, but then they're like pushing some crazy like menstrual cycle product. I don't know. You know, you know the type I'm talking about. I'm not trying to be like that. I've just like been thinking more about spirituality and about like energies and specifically like Buddhism because I was baptized and raised Catholic. I um, went to like CCD. I did – I didn't actually get confirmed because I, um, I dropped out of that process. Basically, I was only raised Catholic because my grandparents are Catholic and my grandparents live with me because, yeah, I think that's like more common with like Asian immigrant households. Um, but my grandparents lived with me until I was about like nine years old and then they moved out west because my grandma had arthritis and, um, the east coast cold weather was just not good for her. But she was the one who was like really Catholic in her family and I I feel like when, when they moved, we just like stopped, we like gave up. In saying that, my mom's side of the family is Buddhist and so I've always had like a proximity to Buddhism but I didn't really start looking into it until recently as part of like my whole like meditation thing that I've been doing a lot of. And because of that, I've just been like more at ease and I'm more like aware of like the easy state that I've like that I'm mentally in and I'm more protective over keeping my peace, like maintaining my peace. Also, what's been helping a lot is I've been doing so much like nature Uh, nature trips and I really think I think my time in New York City is definitely on its like tail end um I love New York but I'm also like I need to be I need to be where I can touch grass which reminds me of an article that I read so um I read this article on Eater which was really really interesting it was called Foraging Classes Wellness Yurts and the agritourism fantasy so the summary of this article is that it's covering the phenomenon of these luxury farm hotels which present a glamorized virgin which virgin a version of agricultural work while promising to reconnect city dwellers with nature uplift small farmers and impact some of the food system's biggest challenges This article is very, very uplifting and positive about the idea of agritourism. And if you don't know what agritourism is, it's basically like these small farms, mostly like family run. They started organizing these like nature resort trips on their farms and um, basically like excursions for people who mostly live in cities to escape and have a taste of like rural life, like very Marie Antoinette um, coded when she like built out a farm in Versailles so that she could cosplay as 
a provincial princess, a provincial girl. Similar kind of deal. A lot of these farms, very expensive. So one that they profiled is called Wildflower Farms, and it exists on 140 acres of land in New York's Hudson Valley, and a two-person cabin starts at $731 per night. What you get in that package is um, breakfast in the hen house where a member of the farm staff who manages the animals encourages guests to collect as many eggs as they find. Visitors can then take those eggs home or bring them to the on-farm restaurant called Clay where a chef will use them to prepare breakfast. So the idea of agritourism isn't actually new. In the late 1880s, People were making hunting trips and sightseeing excursions to the American West, and they would stay at these places called dude ranches. After World War II, the popularity of dude ranches increased enormously, and during the 1920s and 30s, they were the main tourist attraction in the Rocky Mountain area. And these dude ranches offered you that taste of, like, nostalgia, um, towards like a simpler life or even like the novelty of living like a cowboy for a couple days or a couple months, however much you wanted to like spend there. Similar to the way that a lot of these like agritourism farm stays offer you that taste of what it's like to live as a farmer. A very glamorized farmer, but a farmer nonetheless. And a lot of people, they are flocking to these farm cities because, you know, they're living in cities where we're so cut off from nature and from any kind of, like, food production. And I'll say a lot of people have no idea where their food comes from. And ever since I've started looking into it a lot more, I am very aware when people are not giving me information. (laughs) And a lot of restaurants don't give you information. And I... I feel myself turning into that Portlandia couple. I don't know if you guys have seen Portlandia. I think this was like the first episode of Portlandia with um, Fred Armisen. And it's like this couple who go to this restaurant and they're like, oh, like, can you tell us more about the chicken? Like, what's the name of the chicken? Like, what kind of life did the chicken have? And it's a satire um, because they like – the restaurant like brings out this binder about this chicken named Kevin. I think that was the name or Colin. It was, it was some, the chicken had a name and it was like pictures of the chicken, like hanging out and doing stuff as like evidence of the fact that this chicken was like humanely raised. (laughs) But of course, most restaurants don't give you that kind of information. Most supermarkets don't give you that kind of information. And I think a lot of people are tired of being in the dark about these things. Um, I remember reading The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. I don't think Michael Pollan is a perfect person. Um, Maintenance Phase did a whole episode on him, but like The Omnivore's Dilemma does ask a lot of really important questions uh, that I think are worth reflection. And one of the things that Michael Pollan says that really resonated with me is that we care so much about, you know, who's fixing up our house who is cutting our hair. I don't know if you use that example, but we care about people who work in specific service industries before we work with them, right? Like we care about an architect if if we're trying to design a house. We care about the person who's doing our nails at the nail salon, but yet we don't care about who is growing the food that we then put into our bodies. This is also like an extremely privileged take. I think a lot of people don't have the capabilities to even think about this. Um, If you have like a family, if you're doing like multiple jobs, the last thing you want to do is exhaust yourself at the supermarket by thinking like, hmm, I wonder what the conditions were for these chickens. (laughs) You know, like I think you have to have a certain amount of free time to be able to ponder these kind of questions in a realistic way that would actually change the trajectory of the way that you buy food. You also have to have a lot of money because of the way that the farming industry works in America is that uh, these big supermarkets have overpowered like small family farms and just by being able to scale more like bigger supermarkets are able to price their products lower than what like a small family farm is able to and therefore if you don't have like a lot of disposable income for food, you're just going to purchase like the cheapest option, especially if you have a big house. Something that I was thinking about recently Teenagers eat a fuck ton, especially teenage boys. And this is so like, (laughs) this is 
<laughs> this is going on a tangent. But I remember reading this Am I the Asshole post where this person was complaining about how her nephew was like eating so much. And he was like 15 years old. And she was like, he's eating seconds and thirds. And we like cut him off because it's not okay for him to be eating that much. Um, and that was like the only reason that they cited for being a problem. It wasn't like because there wasn't enough food. Like this woman was just like upset by the concept of her nephew eating so much. And all these people in the comments were like, he's literally growing. Like he needs to be eating. You cannot be telling him not to eat because it's really important for you to be able to like consume as many nutrients as possible when you're in your growing stages. And this one person, this one commenter even said that he grew up in a lower class home. And so he didn't have the luxury of being able to have second servings or third servings. Meanwhile, like his younger brother, because by the time his younger brother was born, his family was making more money and had more disposable income to put towards food. So his brother was able to like get more nutrients. And the result was that his brother ended up being a foot taller than him. So yeah, all of this is to say groceries are expensive as is and it makes total sense why many people are not like choosing farm fresh hu certified humane eggs for instance because those eggs are like $10 a carton these days depending on where you live. New York City also has a lot of food deserts. Um, specifically like in the Bronx and deep in Brooklyn and food deserts are also like really common across all of America and a food desert if you don't know what that is it's like when you don't have um, viable supermarkets within like an area or within a region and the only place that people buy groceries is like at bodegas or convenience stores or whatnot and there's like maybe like a couple fast food chains available and if you live in a food desert you definitely don't have the luxury of being able to buy quality food because one most food deserts are within areas that are lower income but also too like there's no products available to choose from like there's one brand of eggs there's one brand of milk so yeah this is just like a disclaimer that the situation is way more complicated than just people not being aware like there are definitely people who are aware of the problems with their food industry and they just don't have the capabilities to change anything about their consumer decisions. The people who are going on these agritourism tours, though, definitely do have the luxury because, as I said, these tours tend to be very expensive. These farm stays go up in the hundreds per night. And similar to today's agritourism, these dude ranches were occurring at a time when people had a lot of anxiety about their surroundings um, and their situation. So around like the late 1800s, early 1900s, we had the Industrial Revolution, which was transforming the East Coast, polluting and scarring the countryside and destroying wildlife. And so the mystic of this untouched West attracted many people, um, usually of means, who wanted to be free from these like super dense populations, this kind of pollution, etc., they wanted to just ride horses into the sunset and enjoy the lush scenery. It makes total sense. Other factors that led to this phenomenon was the continued spread of the national park system, the cultivation and success of Teddy Roosevelt's cowboy persona, the rise of the Western in films such as The Great Train Robbery of 1903, and dime novels, and the massively successful See America First tourism campaign which all led to the formalization of the dude ranch industry with the 1926 creation of the Dude Ranchers Association, or DRA. And these guests were known as dudes, <laughs> which had a different connotation back then than today. Um, at the time, dude just meant someone who was paying for services at a western ranch. It did have kind of negative connotations, like before that, because in the 1880s, dude was like a popular urban slang for a dandy, um, someone who was like overdressed and someone who was like kind of stupid. <laughs> the overdressed part was not an exaggeration. A lot of these guests who came to these ranches, um, they would dress up as like cowboys or what they I thought were cowboys. So they would dress kind of colorfully. They would wear these really big hats, um, rattlesnake belts, leather chaps. 
clothing that is stereotyped as being like cowboy fashion but is not like everyday attire by any means by people who actually work on cattle farms because yeah like the reality is like working clothing is never going to be that glamorous and look I was guilty of this too as so many of the cottagecore girlies who don't actually live on farms we love to dress up in our like white dresses in our gingham sets and frolic through the wilderness But are we working? A lot of the times, no. Because I think if I was actually working on a farm, I would be wearing denim or something more durable. Um, I will say a white dress is going to get dirty real quick and is not easy to clean. And so I would definitely not wear it if I was doing some hard manual labor. Even like riding horses. I rode a horse recently. Um, I am a horse girl. I'm coming clean. Spirit of the Stallion of the Cimarron soundtrack slaps. It is probably the best animated soundtrack ever. And yes, I do know that Tarzan exists. And Phil Collins really put his heart and soul in Tarzan. But I'm telling you, Brian Adams, he was singing his heart out. He went full horse. He put his whole horse sussy into that soundtrack. And I'm obsessed with it. Also Hans Zimmer. It was a double, it was a joint sleigh. They maximized their joint sleigh. Anyways, I rode a horse and I wore like cute shorts thinking I'm going to look cute on this horse, obviously. And they recommended that you wear pants because when the horse is walking, it kind of like brushes up against trees and stuff. And it's just like better protection if you're wearing pants. Also, when I rode horses the previous year, it was through a marsh. And uh, there were so many mosquitoes. And of course, like, I was once again wearing cute shorts. And the guide was like, please put on some pants because we are going through mosquito territory and you will get bitten to death if you are not fully covered. And so I did put on pants and I think it might have saved my life. But in saying all that, I want to read Struthers Burt's quote because it really hits me deep in the soul. Um... He wrote, the dude rancher knows that when eastern damsels put on overalls and wear egregious scarves, they don't look in the least like cowgirls, but he encourages them to do these things because it is good for their souls. (laughs) So dude ranching did have its peak in the 1920s. 1929 is when the industry crashed because of the economic recession and then World War II. So then after World War II, tourism did come back, but... Most people opted for like shorter vacations rather than these like lengthy stays at a dude ranch. There are still dude ranches out there if you're interested in staying at one. Um, But back to like farm stays, I think these are way more accessible for a lot of people because a lot of the farm stays are like you're only there for a weekend or a week at most. Um, It's not really like a long-term program that these dude ranches are mostly known to have. And I think it works a lot better for people's lifestyles because everyone's a workaholic these days, trying to hustle constantly, not taking breaks. And the idea of like going on like a month-long stay at a ranch is like very daunting. I also think that for some reason, farms don't get like the conservative slant the redneck slant that a lot of like ranches these days get even though there are a lot of farmers who are anti-lgbt white supremacists there are lots of them trust me (laughs) i drove through west virginia one year and it was a sight to behold it was so scary actually and i was like my car better not break down because i don't know what these people will respond with if I like come knocking on their door for help. (laughs) But I remember driving past this um, house in West Virginia and it was a very small house, but the sign that was like Trump 2020 was massive. It was bigger than the house. It was literally two times the size of the house and it was so baffling to see. Also because it wasn't even 2020 anymore, it was 2021. And I was just like, "Uh, uh, we need to figure out our priorities here. So yeah, there are lots of like pockets of deep conservatism that is very scary in a lot of rural areas. It's not like split between 
red states and blue states because trust, I've driven upstate New York. I have seen some crazy signs up there. Um, But I think because a lot of these farm state programs are in the Northeast, like they're in New York, they're in, um, they're near Philadelphia, they're in Vermont, people have this idea that they're probably liberal and they're probably going to be safe places for them to stay at. In saying all this, I came across a really cool article called What is a Dude? And it was published in Aeon Magazine by Bridget Hain, oh sorry, by Anne Helen Peterson. And in the article, she talks about how a lot of these ranches um, historically were not very friendly (laughs) towards non-white people. To stay there, you had to have a letter of reference from a previous guest. And, quote, it went unspoken that Jews and non-white races were unwelcome. She later asked the question, what do we do to the things that don't want us? We fetishize them, turning them into objects of desire, devoting ourselves often masochistically to the impossible task of obtaining that which rejects us. That's exactly what I did to the idea of the West in the stories I told to my college friends, to my boyfriend, to my French host mother while studying abroad. I fetishized it so thoroughly that when it came time to think about what I wanted to do in the months following graduation, I decided to return to the source. I wanted the dude ranch. That's sort of the same kind of narrative I felt about going through like Idaho and enjoying like this kind of like cottage core cosplay I was doing. And I feel like this is also very similar to a lot of people of color and um, LGBT people who also love to dress up in this way and participate in this kind of like farm life way. And it's because these experiences are withheld from us. Because we know that if we actually went to the majority of these ranches, the majority of these farms out there, that we would be unwelcome. And you know, it's like this idea that if you can't have it, you want it more. The conclusions that Anne reached are similar to a lot of what uh, the con- like the criticisms towards agritourism were, which is that like these dude ranches for tourists are not – Um, indicative of what like it's like to actually work in a cattle farm and even for her because she was working there as like a staff member the staff cabins were much worse um, accommodations than the guest cabins which were like these luxury cabins anyway she writes we go to the west to feel powerful to feel masculine whether we identify as male or female but the only way we can do so is by making the west itself into a passive object mystical, beautiful, and subject to our gaze. We spend a week rebuilding our flattened libidos on the trail, on horseback, on the top of a mountain, then return to the east, the urban space, wherever that is not west, restored, ready once again to be robust Americans. The problem, of course, is the ethos of domination, exploitation, and willful blindness that accompanies that relationship. We see the West for the babbling brooks and mountains and trees, not the uncontrollable wildfires, the unencumbered spread of beetle kill, the copper and silver mines transformed into Superfund sites. Americans see the West's usefulness in maintaining some semblance of national identity and prefer not to see the wounds it has sustained for serving that role. But I think a lot of these ranches and likewise these farms understand this and they understand that to make money they have to play into this fetishization, to play into this like rural fantasy that people have. And that's why when I was looking at these farm stays, a lot of them offer very luxurious experiences. There's like a wellness yurt yoga session in New Mexico and there's like some... Noma sounding multi-course dinner called Theater for the Hungry in Montana. Though in saying all this, I think like dude ranches count as agritourism technically, definitionally. So I'm going to read some statistics about the agritourism business growth. The value of the U.S. agritourism market rose from $2.2 billion in 2020 to $2.5 billion in 2021, making North America the largest regional agritourism market in the world and that growth is projected to continue in the coming years. Opponents of agritourism complain that um, a lot of these farm stays don't actually showcase the realities of working on a farm. 
a lot of people who work on farms don't indulge in a Himalayan salt stone massage at the end of the day, um, as they do in Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. I also think that a lot of the times um, these type of farm experiences might color people's perceptions of farms generally. Like there are a lot of really nice, sustainable, small-scale farms um, that pay people well. (laughs) But uh, a lot of where our food comes from are on these farms that, you know, factory farm for instance – or like abuse undocumented immigrants and pay them below minimum wage and uh, basically run them on like indentured servitude. A lot of farms are not doing – I would actually say the majority of food that we get at our local supermarkets is not ethically farmed. And so unless like these programs are really clear about the differences between like a small farm versus like a commercial farm, then – there's like potential for people to be misled. The positives though is that there are studies that show that agritourism influences consumer behavior when it comes to shopping locally. Carla Barbieri, who's professor of parks, recreation, and tourism management at North Carolina State University, said, we found that after an agritourism experience, people were willing to spend up to 20% more on local food. When consumers realize what local farmers are producing, they are more willing to produce local foods and to increase their family budget to buy local foods. Barbieri also points to conservation efforts motivated by agritourism. She says, because farmers are receiving visitors, their farm has to look nice, so they are conserving native plants and flowers and ecosystems. Native wildflowers that feed and shelter pollinators have both an aesthetic appeal for tourists and a real beneficial environmental impact. So yeah, I guess like a lot of people who are on these farms do recognize that these are local farms that are doing something different than a lot of commercial farms. Okay, that is a positive thing. Um, And then from the farmer perspective, Jesse McDougall, who is an owner of one of these farm stay programs, an owner of one of these farms that runs farm stay programs, he says, we weren't thinking of agritourism education. We were thinking we needed to pay our loans. And now part-time hospitality earns the family more money than their land and livestock. And in the article they say, like, even though, for instance, collecting eggs at wildflower farms is not representative of the way that the vast majority of eggs are produced commercially, an alternative to, like, having people actually tour an industrial egg-laying facility and seeing the kind of, like, um, horrors that exist there uh, – An alternative to that mode of education is educating through wonder, which I thought was really interesting. So they describe it as the kind of wonder you get from holding a freshly laid egg in the appreciation and the inherent gratitude and understanding of what um, one egg signifies. My problem with this whole industry though, and this is not something that was touched on in the article I don't think, is that Once again, it's very privileged, so only a certain number of people can actually afford to do this and participate in these kind of programs. And I think what ends up happening or what probably could happen is that there's now a group of people who are really about health maxing for themselves, but then they're not thinking about the rest of the community. Like they're not trying to make any notable changes Uh, to our actual food system like they're just like okay I'm gonna shop at Erewhon and I'm gonna get the products that are really good for me but I don't really care if people can't also afford this and actually I'm gonna argue that a lot of people who have this attitude are also kind of uppity about being part of the class of people who can afford to have healthy choices in their life so yeah I don't know if there necessarily is like a fully positive results from these farm stay programs. I'm happy for the farmers because it seems like adding agritourism to their um, farms has been like life-changing for a lot of them. But I think in terms of like making actual changes in the farming industry and the food industry as we know it, like I don't think these farm stays are that uh, revolutionary. But yeah, I'd be interested to hear what any of you have to say about this or, you know, just like any of the topics. Would you wear human hair, for instance? (laughs) Um, You can write in. 
highbrowbymina at gmail.com. I'm also, I have a phone number that I'll link, I'll put in in the show notes. I do really think like hearing people's voices is fun, though I know like the Google voice thing is not the best quality. So if anyone has a um, solution to that, but whatever you're comfortable with, write in, call in. I'd love to hear it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. As always, this episode was edited by Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, and cover art by Lindsay Mintz. If you want to follow the Highbrow Instagram page, it's instagram.com slash highbrow.pod. And yeah, I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. (laughs) 